Well, how do you do, young Willie McBride? Well, how do you do, Private Willie McBride? Do you mind if I sit here, down by your graveside? Do you mind if I sit here, down by your graveside? And I'll rest for a while in the warm summer sun. I've been walking all day, Lord, and I'm nearly done. I see by your gravestone, see by your gravestone you're only 19, 19 when you joined the glorious fallen in 1916. I hope you died quick. I hope you died clean. Or Willie McBride, was it slow and obscene? Or Willie McBride, was it slow and obscene? The day beat, the drums slowly, Here is a song that has long been close to my heart. And as I listen to it now, I'm filled with the same emotion that I felt when I first heard it over 30 years ago. Did you leave a wife? And did you leave a wife or a sweetheart behind? In some faithful heart is your memory enshrined And though you died back in 1916 To that loyal heart are you forever 19 You may know it as No Man's Land Or maybe just Willie McBride For me, well I know it as the green fields of France Or are you a stranger Or are you a stranger without even a name Forever enshrined behind some last pain in an old photograph, torn in an old photograph, and torn and tattered and stained, and fading to yellow, in a brown leather frame, and faded to yellow in the brown leather frame. It's about a young Irish soldier who was killed in the First World War, and considering the different political views towards World War One here in Ulster, it's sung affectionately by both Orange and Green. There are many versions, but this one by the Furies is possibly the most famous. The sun, now it shines on the green fields of France. There's a warm summer breeze. But of course, it wasn't the Furies who wrote the green fields of France. The song was in fact penned by the Scottish folk singer Eric Bogle after he visited the battlefields in the 1970s. This is a song about uh, the First World War. I was in uh, northern France last year and uh, there's a lot of military graveyards, French, German, British. If anybody wants to see how silly and wasteful war is, they should visit. I uh, study the First World War. It's a hobby of mine. So the song is called No Man's Land. Well, how to do Germans, South Africans, New Zealanders, Australians, all sacrificed for what turned out to be dubious, dubious causes and reasons. I've been there many times, well, six or seven times now, and I've still got to feel the same anger and the same sadness. It never lessens, it's always there. And you walk away thinking, we've let them all down. Look what's happening today, we've let them all down. And that's a hard thing to bring home with you. I must admit, I'm not a World War I expert. We weren't taught about it at school, and we never talked about it growing up. And as far as I'm aware, I have no family members who fought in it. But recently, with the centenary of World War I, and more particularly the Battle of the Somme, where thousands of Ulster, British and Irish men fought and died side by side, I've been thinking more and more about their courage and their sacrifice. And I find myself wondering, 
What must it have been like for those who went to war? Why did they go off to fight? And as Eric Bogle asked in his lyrics, did they really believe that this war would end wars? You walk around these graveyards and look at the ages of the wee boys and you think, children, children. And there's so many of them. So that's the sadness. Then the anger, why? You know, why was all this necessary? Why did all these young people have to die? You know, just like Willie McBride, who was 19 years old and he was killed, we send our children to kill other people's children. That's what war's all about. Is your memory enshrined? And though you died back in 1916, to Listening to Eric Bogle speak emotionally about his visit to the war graves, well, it's encouraged me to travel to northern France, where I hope the experience will provide me with some of the answers to those questions that have been on my mind. And if possible, I want to learn a lot more about this young soldier, Willie McBride. Well, I know there were many W. McBrides from Ireland who fought in World War I, but there was one soldier from a small farm in County Armagh whom I've heard may be the actual one that Eric Bogle sings about. So before I head to France, I'm going to make my way to a place known locally as Rowan's Cottage, where I'm going to meet historian Trevor Geary, and I'm going to meet Willie's nephew, Joe McBride. By your gravestone you were only 19 when you joined the Great Fallen in 1916. I hope you died well, and I hope you died clean. Hello, Joe, Jerry Kelly. Nice to see you. Hope you don't mind me uh, having a wee chat about oh, your, not at all. your uncle. Not at all. And this is where he came from. Where exactly are we? How far out of how far out of Katy or how far out of Armagh are we? Well, we're four mile out of Armagh and two and a half mile out of Katy. Out of Katy. So this is the family house. My goodness. Yeah. Away you go. I'll follow you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What a beautiful, beautiful room. I love this. He's he's loving down at you. So there he is. That's that's him. Battered and torn in a brown leather frame, that's exactly it up there. Willie McBride. Some of these letters were actually recovered from his body. This is the medal that all deceased soldiers were given at the time. He died for freedom and honour, and his name, William McBride, printed. In them days, to be in the army wasn't a, a job. They were all volunteers. The whole 36th Ulster Division and the Irish Division, they were all volunteers. There was nobody from Ireland was conscripted into the army. Uh, everybody probably had their reasons. I wonder what all these reasons were. Well, I would say the biggest part of his reasons was uh, his loyalty to the Ulster Volunteers and... Edward Carson had uh, appealed them to go and the 36th Ulster Division was set up to keep the Ulster Volunteers, that section of the British Army, all in one group. And uh, that's the way they went right through the war. I, and I, I, I'm quite sure that there was loyalty to that cause that, that sent them there, you know. 
I always think of it many a time, you know, he probably walked away from the cottage, you know, and walked away for the last time. What would he have known about war? He, he mustn't have known anything that he was going to. No, he, he wouldn't have known anything, really. I'm looking at a letter now from uh, Willie to his mother. It's, they're all quite faded, unfortunately, but I'll try and make it out. Dear mother, I am sure you are wondering why I have not answered your letter sooner, but have been very busy this last while, that I have hardly any time. I hope you're all doing well and in good health. Please excuse the short letter writing, as this is a busy day and I am very busy. <laughs> I am your loving son, Willie. <laughs> How sure are you that the Willie McBride that Eric Bogle's singing about is your uncle Willie? Well, uh, anybody that has researched the British war records, which are very accurate, there's few soldiers down as W. McBride, and as far as the age is concerned, his is the closest. So to this age. is the, this is the best fit, really, to it's the, the song. The best fit, I'm told. Uh, like I, it's also the only headstone in a tale that has the full spelling of William. The other is a W, and then in the record book up at the, the Cross of Sacrifice, there's another W referred to in the book, but there's no headstone. The song itself talks about the futility of war. Ah, well, that was the point of the song, you know, to point out how futile war was. <coughs> I, can, I can now just start to feel Eric's feelings, you know. I can understand his emotion and the tension and fully appreciate the sentimentalities that was expressing and the senses and trying to convey it. And I can only but commend you know, what he did do in the in the words of the song. And as I say, they finish up about the futility of war, and it happened again and again and again and again. Well, Joe and Trevor have given me the location of Willie's grave, and I've just arrived in France. In fact, I've left Paris. I'm making my way 80 miles north into the heart of the Anchor Valley. I've just passed the small town of Albert, which was a strategic control centre during World War I. It's a very peaceful day today, but a hundred years ago, this town was reduced to a pile of rubble. And I'm now surrounded by the fields on either side. These are the green fields that Eric Bogle talks about. The fields are immense, absolutely immense. There are no blackthorn hedges here separating one field from the other. This is where the Battle of the Somme was. I've arranged to meet Rod Bedford, who is chairman of the Somme British Legion, and I'm hoping that Rod will tell me a lot more about this area. Rod, I'm Jerry. Pleased to meet you. Thank you, Jerry. Thanks Good for uh, thanks for agreeing to show us around today. Where have we come to first of all? Well, at the moment we're actually at the place called Beaumont Hamel. Beaumont Hamel is a place famous to many regiments that pass through here, but particularly on the 1st of July, the 29th Division of the British Army, and they included, of course, the Inniskin Fusiliers and the Dublin Fusiliers. The trenches today, Rod, are a nice meandering, all green grass and so on. They look quite quite calm and quite nice. What were they like 100 years ago? That these would be at least another 6 to 8 feet deep. Yes. If we were walk down there, none of us would be able to look over the top of it. But in the First World War, these would have been 
chuck a block with men at any time. And flooded with water as well. Would it flooded with water in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the wet seasons, of course. Days when we're up to our knees in water in these trenches. Other days when the heat was so unbearable, they were looking for shade and water to drink. You know, so they went through all the extremes of the weather in these trenches. I'm just thinking of a young soldier in the fourth trench that we just passed and then getting the call to move to the third one, then the second one. Yeah. And, and the terror of going through that line. But these men always believe it's not going to be them. It's always going to be somebody else. They'll make it through because somebody's on their side or the luck that's on their shoulders. But as they get towards the frontline trenches, of course, they're then going to meet the wounded coming back. Of course. It's going to hit them of course, hard. Of course. And can imagine the terror when you get to the frontline trench and as your whistle is blown to go over the top, you come across the parapet and out there in no man's land are the dead and the dying. And you've still got to pass over the dead and the dying to do your duty to get to within fighting range with the bayonet of your enemy while around you your friends are falling dead. It's just unimaginable. Totally unimaginable. How many men were killed? On this one fateful yeah. day, which is the blackest day for the British Army in history, of 130,000 men that left the trenches on a frontage of about 15 kilometres, by the end of the day it rounds up to nearly 60,000 wounded, of which nearly 20,000 are killed in one day. And it is recorded as the blackest day for the British Army in history. In their hearts, they believed they were seeing it through so that their children would never fight again. And quite often we see that in the writings of the soldiers that served, that they believe that this is the war to end the wars. There will never be another. But as Eric Bogle says, it all happened again, again and again again and again. again. So, so this is the boundary for the 36th Ulster Division. And they do say that this little river here, they say that this river, an old wooden mill, which is shown on the map, but the mill there is where the water's breaking. They say on the 1st of July that this river ran red with the blood of Ulstermen, sometimes known as the Onkra or the Ank. And they said ran red with the blood of Ulstermen. Rod, you've now brought me to Loch Nagar Crater. This is really the first noise of the Battle of the Somme. And uh, there, were, there were a number of mines set off on the Battle of the Somme. There was an earlier one at uh, 7.20, but at 7.30 the remaining mines went off and the Loch Nagar was one of the biggest. Before you go any further, we've just now come to the rim of this crater. How, how wide across is it? The, the crater is said to be 120 metres across. And how deep? It's nearly 90 metres deep and 360 metres round. This area where we are now is what we call a redoubt, German redoubt, a fortified area slightly forward into no man's land where they could shoot left and right into no man's land. So this is a very dangerous place to be attacking. So we're going to dig a tunnel just about 750 metres in length in that direction, underneath our own trenches, out under no man's land, underneath the Germans. And then they say when they got underneath the Germans, they built a little room the size of a pitch gallery. And they 
dug underneath the ground, underneath their own men, underneath no man's land, underneath the Germans, worked away and planted all that. 90,000 pounds, nearly 30 tonne of explosive. And then one press of a button produced a hole the size of this. And that blast, that hurled at the start of the battle. Well, with me now is a gentleman from Guildford, Richard Dunning, who actually purchased this site back in 1978. Yeah. When I bought the place, 78, I had 600 letters in a week. There's 150 were from old boys who had personal memories of this place. And I, we, with friends, brought them over. And these men in their 80s, some of them were tough characters. When they stand here with tears rolling down and they talked about how as young men, 18 years old, you know, that they had lost their best friends, their brothers or whatever. One of the old boys said he helped throw in bags of lime. When he looked in, they were lined up, the Germans, on the carved-out benches, all of them dead, all of them unmarked, killed by the concussion. A day or two after the battle, when um, slightly out of range and they started to gather, they put a thousand bodies, British bodies, from the fields into the crater. There was a, there was a, a chaplain here, stood there for hours, just doing a constant prayer as they rolled the bodies in. As they look down into the into the mouth of the of the crater, are there bodies still there? We know there are bodies, of course there are. The whole place is a cemetery, the whole battlefield, you know, but there will be, there will be people down there. When you stand here and you look in it and you think that what man is capable of doing to his fellow man, you know, up to 5,000 men were killed here in a matter of hours. In a way, it symbolises and sums up all the tragedy and enormous courage and tenacity that took place here. Every half a yard a man fell, you know, and for what? What an amazing story that was of Lochnagar. The crater is huge. And to hear the, the strategy behind it, how they buried and tunneled their way under it, it is just amazing. Just looking round me, I can see the Thiepville Memorial. That's for the British and the, and the French troops. And apparently there are tens of thousands of names of of fallen soldiers there. Yeah. But uh, looking on around, I'm, I'm looking for a, a tower that I'll, I'll recognise because it's it's a replica of Helen's Tower, which is in the uh, Dufferin and Ava estate in Clandyboy in County Down. And it is the Ulster Memorial Tower. And I want to meet the two custodians of that tower. They're two people from Northern Ireland. They've been here for something like 15 years welcoming visitors. That's Teddy and Phoebe Colligan. So I want to make my way to there. Seatbelt on. <laughs> Just as I head towards the Ulster Tower, I'm going to pass the 36th Ulster Memorial Cemetery. I can see it in the distance. Again, it's not the white crosses that Eric Bogle's talking about. I presume they've all been replaced. It's like chalk or marble headstones, white headstones. You can see them from far and wide goodness there must be three four five hundred there on the horizon is the Ulster Tower of course and 
what a commanding view it has. And I see the Union flag welcoming us. Welcome, Thank you very much indeed, Teddy. Good welcome. to see you. Good to see you. I've heard so much about you and Phoebe, your well, wife. I know quite a bit about you as well. So, <laughs> you know, it's a well, maybe, familiar face. Maybe enough said then. Maybe enough said. <laughs> we're, here, we're here at the Ulster Tower, and again, I've heard so much about this. Why is it here? Why is it in this particular spot? Well, you're right on a 90 degree bend in the German front line for the advance here on the 1st of July. Okay. The German trench is just 40 yards away from here and then runs through the back of this building here, through the garden. So this is quite a strategic, very, it was a hundred years ago. Very strategic position. When was it actually built? 1921, it's the first memorial on the whole of the Western Front. And why was it built? The tower was used as a memorial because the Ulster Division trained and camped round Helen's Tower. There's lots of brilliant photographs of hundreds of bell This tents, is the Clandyboy Estate. The Clandyboy Estate. And the story was that it was the last thing that the soldiers could see as they went down Belfast Lock. Okay, okay. So it was decided that the tower would make an appropriate memorial. So it's our national memorial. The site that we're standing on is very unique in that it's Ulster territory. Excuse me, you, I'm standing in Ulster? You are. Really? You are. The French gave us this at the end of the war. This was given to us for the princely sum of one franc. So this plot of ground that we have here is very, very special. Very special to us. We're looking out here now, it's a beautiful, beautiful spring morning. And I'm looking at these magnificent green fields, like it's a 360 degree panoramic view here. But these were the killing fields. These are the killing fields. Explain to me what I'm looking at. Start, start on my right hand side and well, talk me through that whole vista. Straight across there, down in the bottom here, you have the Onk Valley, right? And you have a river, you have the railway line, you have a road, you have a fosse, which is dust canal, like a little canal running down through here. There's lots of little mills which actually became strong points as well uh, during the uh -huh. during the attacks. Uh -huh. uh, the Ulster Division didn't attack up the valley on the 1st of July, but were actually split by that valley. So on the other side of the hill, over where you see the trenches there, you see the white marks and all. Yeah, how far is that away, well, would you reckon? That's around about 600 yards. Okay. Right. So that is the German positions to the right of that little cops that you see there yes and the British positions are on the left that's the British trench you can see in the field to the right of the farm yeah you see the white lines yes, you're looking yes, for the white yes, marks yes. in the fields so you've two battalions over there and you've ten here you can almost see each other oh you can see each other you can hear each other you can smell their dinner their breakfast and all you can apparently you can smell their food and hear them talking goodness gracious yeah. me and when the Germans and the French were here in 1914 they were far closer Germans were in the road there in 1914 with shooting positions and all in the road. I have the 1914 German maps.
show you some of the uh, some of the finds over recent recent years. This is a little museum you have here. This is a little museum, and uh, when we came here originally, uh, there was nothing really in here. And are you telling me all the stuff in here and all these cabinets, all these helmets, the bullets? Are here in the last fifteen years. And you found I, all didn't, these... I didn't find all of it, but, right, but most the biggest of majority of it. But what makes it all the more poignant for me that underneath all this, there are bodies. Yes. There are German bodies. There well, are British bodies. There are Ulster bodies. We buried three in October. Three what men do you mean buried. You buried three, in October? three men buried in October, the eighth of October, and their bodies were found on that little curb where your car's sitting, just right. outside the front door here. Right, just on the right of the drive. Yes, we found. A soldier from the Ulster Division. Right. How did you find them? These Royal Irish Rifles. They were but how how did you find them? Was oh, they were, they were putting the curb in. They were digging down to put concrete underneath those little blocks. To put those blocks on concrete. And what we found is here. So what we found, what was found with that body, is here. I'm looking at a cabinet now, and in this cabinet, all this was found. That was found with the body of. Royal Irish Rifles. There's a helmet, there's, explain to me, Marcel, there's a buckle, there's a, there's the insignia. Uh-huh. And so that's how you knew. He was Ulster Division. He's Royal Irish Rifles. Did you get a name? Could you no. actually, you can't get a name? Not for this one, not for this one. But it is a possibility the times that you can get a name, you can't yes, you can. it back? Yes, you can. The next body that was found, we know all about him. Not everyone in the Ulster Division was from Ulster. He's a coal miner from the little village of Felling. And Felling is south of Newcastle upon Tyne. Right, right. And he was buried in the Connop. His name is David Harkness Blakey, 26 year old, and his body was found on the curb when they were putting the curb in in front of the Connop Cemetery. So you have, you've got all that information from mm-hmm. finding this body outside your front door, virtually here virtually, at, at virtually, the memorial. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you the saddest part about this story, right? David Harkness Blakey's nephew or great nephew or something, he's been coming here for years and years, and I've got to know him very, very well. And every time he's here, he'll come in and he'll ask Phoebe when are the tours. And Sir David, you've done a tour, you've you know you've been on them and all, you know you've been on them many a time. He says I just feel as if I'm very, very close to uh, a relative. relative. You see, little did he know that we just walked over him. Oh my goodness. But he died two months before the body was found. No. Yes. Oh, how sad is that? Two months before. How sad is so that? So his wife was here in a wheelchair, and uh, her daughter and her grand- grandchildren and all. And it was such an emotional thing. Hello, Cathy. Hello, Jerry. How oh, are you? Oh, I love the accent. <laughs> can I sit down with you for a moment? Of course you can. <laughs> why are you here? Tell me why you're here. Long we come in here, Teddy, about nine, ten years. And we've got friendly with Teddy and Phoebe since, and we'll come back really more to see them more than anything. But from it, I started coming over, I discovered that my mother's uncle, my mum's from Donegal originally, mm-hmm. and she married, married uh, my dad, and she's been living in Belfast since 1958. But her uncle joined the Royal Inniskillings. He was in the Inniskillings. In the Skillings. 
and she had just said, oh, my uncle joined the war and he, he died in 1916. And I thought, well, I didn't know that. You know, why did somebody from Donegal? I didn't understand. And it was because of what was all what was all kicking off in Ireland at the time. Course, he joined yeah. up to get a, get away from anything that was going on down there. And uh, he came over here. He, well, he joined the Royal Irish and ended up fighting. And we think that well, the Enniskillings were in Thiepful Wood. Isn't that right, Teddy? Yeah, yeah. I found out a wee bit more about it. And he was injured. I don't know what date he was injured on, but he died on the 17th of July, 1916. He was brought from here to Aldershot Hospital. And my grandfather, who was just just uh, a farmer in Donegal, he had to travel from Donegal to bring his, uh, his brother home. He had died. He didn't oh know until goodness. he actually got there. So it was very sad. You know, it must have been horrendous for him. Absolutely horrendous. You know, like I've been coming about here for the past three or four days, and mm-hmm. the stories are yeah. unbelievable. And I, and I mean, I say, mum, I mean, the family never talked about it years ago. You know, with the, just suppose nobody never thought about it. And it was only when I first started coming over, my, my mum says, you know, I, I had an uncle fought in the war, you know. Goodness just, gracious. You know, did so they bring him home to bury him? They or brought what him home, and he's buried in a lovely wee old graveyard in Donegal, near Killy Beggs. Baby, what brought you here? I know you had to come with him, but... <laughs> I know he made you come. No, well, no. This, this means a lot to me because my grandfather was here right through the Somme and down to Passchendaele, and uh, and he ended up he died the twenty seventh of October nineteen eighteen and left five children. Really? Where, so where did he die? Where was he? He was he got in, he got gassed and wounded up in a little place called Gullingham, up in Belgium. He was taken to a top hospital where he died. And that's where he's buried and up he's in buried the top. There. Eleven days later. Eleven days. Later. Eleven days after the last action of the Ninth Inniskillens. He lived on the Shankill Road and he worked in the Shankill Road as a plumber, and he came out here and right from the start, and went right through the whole war to, to die at the end. My goodness. And his, then his his wife died two years later, so my father, his brothers and sisters, had to rear each other. You see, there's other. individual stories everywhere yeah, you go. And I, think, yeah. and I think when you bring it down to an individual story, <coughs> yes. that's where the horror is. Yes. That's yes. where yes. the sadness is. Oh, yes, when you get down everyone to the nitty-gritty. When you get down so to the nitty-gritty. Like num- numbers are numbers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after tens of thousands, it doesn't, it you know, it just, it just loses yeah. its impact. Mm-hmm. But when you hear individual stories, your story, your story, your story, mm-hmm. and, you, and you multiply those by thousands and thousands. Eric Bogle's song. The yes. Green Fields of France, or No Man's Land, or yes. Willie McBride, call Green it, call it what you want. Piece. Your party piece, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but it takes on even more significance when you come here. Teddy, what do you think of the song? It does. The song's very, very, very emotional, uh, very emotive song. It really is. Uh, I love it. I do. I love it. But at the same time, it does talk about the futility of war. Well, hindsight, I suppose, is a wonderful thing. Uh, we're looking back on it, but put yourself here in, you know, in, in 1914, 1918, and the attitude was entirely different then. I mean, this was something that had to be done, and the men stepped up to the plate for it, and, and you know, tens of thousands of them. I mean, 60,000 men were casualties here in one day, one day, over the 20 miles of the front. Uh, absolutely horrendous. That march, as you down. Day in, day out, you tell these stories to the people that are coming. We're waiting on a young... There's a school coming yes, along. Sir. You're yeah. going to do a tour at 3 o'clock, and hopefully we'll be able to join you, if, yeah. if you don't mind. But you tell these stories 
Does your emotions get any less? No. No, it hasn't. It hasn't. There's situations that I seem to get myself into where I absolutely lose the plot. I just can't talk anymore. I have letters written to soldiers, to the mothers of soldiers who died in the wood and died just outside the wood. And I used to read them at the at the trenches. And now I chicken out, I get a volunteer to do it. Because I know what's in the letter, but they don't. When they pick the letter up, they don't know what they're going to read. And I hand them a letter written by, say, the commanding officer of uh, a regiment in there, or a battalion in there, writing to a mother back in Belfast. And I have those letters, I have all those letters. And I find now I have difficulty, because I know what's coming. And even after all these years, and I know them off by heart, but I still have difficulty reading them. So I get a volunteer now, I admit that, I get a volunteer. The sun, now it shines on the green fields of France. Dear Mrs McBride, I am extremely sorry to have to write and tell you of the death of your son William, who was in my platoon. I can only console you by telling you that I know he did not suffer and that his death came swiftly. He was hit by what is known as a mining warfare about 1pm on the 22nd of April. I was wounded in the head about two minutes after William. I cannot tell you how sorry I feel for you in your bereavement. I had picked out your son especially to act as my orderly, as he was such a good lad and had a bright future before him in the army. I feel I have lost not only a good soldier, but a true friend. That were butchered and damned. Did he beat the drums slowly? Did he play the five lowly? Did they sound the death march as he lowered you down? There is a coach, and written on the side of the coach it says, From Grey Abbey. And I see a crowd of young people. I think I'll go up and find out who they are. Willie, young Willie McBride. Do you mind if I sit down beside your graveside and rest a while from the warm summer sun? Well, these are a group of cadets from the Air Training Corps, Sea Cadet Corps, Combined Cadet Corps and the Army Cadet Force. All from Northern Ireland? All from Northern Ireland. That is the party leader there. He's called David McCleary and he's from the wee city in the northwest. Hello, David. How are you doing, nice to meet nice you. Nice to meet you. Is this an annual trip that you take along with the young cadets? Yes and no. Since the centenary started in, in, in 2014, yeah, this is our third. We have another one planned for next year and one for 1918 as well. What's the purpose of it as far as you're concerned? It's to try and raise the awareness among the youngsters of the sacrifice made by soldiers during the First World War. And could I say that we don't just visit the Commonwealth? War graves, we actually visit Langmark, which is a, a German war grave as yes, well, because there were yes. sacrifices made on both of sides. Of course, of course there yeah. were. And I think it's important the kids realise and understand that. But I mean, the horror of what happened here is, is astronomical. Well, that's what strikes me all the time, is that it's the sheer numbers. I mean, 70-odd thousand on the memorial in Thiepville of the missing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's 70,000 families bereaved. It's soldiers who are not much older than these correct, kids. Correct, correct. And that's a frightening that's, thing, isn't yeah, it? That's yeah. the frightening who thing. Who really, their life hadn't really begun. So, 
So you're part of a big group that's here today and here for a couple of days. What have you seen so far and what, what have you made of it all? Well, we went round to the Celtic Cross of the 16th Irish Division earlier and we led a race round there. And what's stuck in your mind most of your record? My life lost within the war or in yeah. the, the battle and the actual, what, they, what that means to be in the war to actually help us for the future. It's been sad because I never really realised before but my family weren't really involved um, and I have my no family relatives. weren't involved either. And I, <laughs> yes, and I'm I'm with you on this. So mm-hmm. I came with with little emotion, I suppose. Yeah. But every hour and every story I hear, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. And to think that some of the soldiers that were here weren't much older than you four. Most of the men knew they were going to to their ends. They knew what they were going to and what they were fighting for. Yeah. Every time you come and you see more graves and more graves, you really realise how traumatic and sad it was. Right, folks, uh, if I could just have your attention for about the next hour, uh, we'll show you something very interesting in the wood. Well, I just left Teddy and Phoebe, and uh, I've taken a moment to myself to sort of take in everything that he told me this morning. He did point out that in the field just beside the memorial, I can see a line of chalk, and he says that that is the line of the trenches. As I walk over these trenches, I can't help think but the people who were underneath them, the young men, on both sides, Germans and British, who were in these trenches. And I can't help but think about the, the horrors that those young men had to endure throughout the war. And we talk about Catholics and Protestants. To me, it doesn't matter whether they were Catholics or Protestants. These were young men who felt duty-bound and honour-bound to defend king and country. And it's just unbelievable to imagine that I'm walking over the actual trenches where these young men fought and died. Can I help but wonder now, Willie McBride, do all those who lie here know why they died? Do they really believe them when they told you the cause? Did you really believe that this war would end wars? Well, the suffering, the sorrow, the glory, the shame, the killing and the dying, it was all done in vain. For Willie McBride, it all happened again and again. And again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. To the 
pipes play the flues of the forest. There's one more place I want to visit, and it's just a few miles along the country lanes from No Man's Land and from the Ulster Tower. It's the resting place of Willie McBride from County Armagh. Little did I know that 30 years after first hearing the green fields of France, I'd be making this journey. Before I arrive at the gravestone, there's one more answer I need from Eric Bogle. Is this the Willie McBride that he sings about in the green fields of France? I know the William McBride they're preparing to. I've got a photograph of his grave sent to me by somebody who visited it. And he's buried in a teal cemetery near Amiens. And most people assume, who believe that the song was written about this one soldier, most people assume that's the soldier it was written about because he comes closest in age and date of birth and date of death. He comes closest to the man I wrote about in the song. The song is a tribute to all the boys who were killed in that bloody conflict, you know. So to then turn around and say it was about one specific boy would be to to denigrate the memory of all those boys who are lying there, you know, forever. So I've always been punctilious in saying the song wasn't written about one soldier, it was written about all the soldiers. And the German soldiers as well as the French soldiers as well as the Irish soldiers, the English soldiers, Scottish ones, the whole world is buried out there. So the song was a tribute to them all. If it transpires that it's not your uncle, would it make any difference? If it wasn't my uncle, it wouldn't make any difference, you know. There are thousands of Willie McBrides lying beneath white crosses out there. Oh, I know, I know, I know, I know. You could call him Willie McBride. Of course, you you could call him Willie McBride, and I think that that's that was the purpose of the song. That that was his name was just used. uh, Reflect across the thousands. Yes, of course. Well, how to do, Private William McBride? Do you mind if I sit here down by your McBride? The name of Bride I chose deliberately. It was a very subtle, <laughs> and I'm not being accused of being subtle songwriter much, but when I wrote the song, 75, you know, the, there was a lot of hassle going on, mainland uh, bombing campaign by the IRA. Uh, Irish uh, people were not held in a great regard by many sections of the British communities. Um, and I wanted... McBride is a sort of peculiarly Northern Irish name. Not, it's not totally peculiar to Northern Ireland, but most people will associate the name McBride with Ireland, Northern Ireland. So I wanted to remind people who heard the song that a lot of Irish boys died in World War One fighting for king and country, for different reasons perhaps, but, you know, I thought it was important given the, the rising anti-Irish feeling just to remind some people at least that there was once a common cause that bound us together. And did you leave a wife? So that was the only point I made in the song and the name McBride, but the rest was was not fiction. There's a million graves 
in France and Flanders that says the song's not fiction. That I didn't want the song to be one soldier specific, I wanted it to be for all of them. And I can't help but wonder now, William McBride, do all those who lie here know why they died? Did you really believe them when they told you the cause? Did you really believe that this war would end wars? Well, the suffering and the suffering Well, I've come to the end of my journey. I'm about to find the grave of Willie McBride, and it's an Otwil cemetery. And I'm just walking down. It's a, it's a beautiful spot. It's a lovely little village, and the cemetery is just on the, on the edge of it. I'm walking down. In front of me, there's a forest. We're down into a valley. I can't quite see the uh, headstones yet, but there's a, a massive cross, just in front of me, with a small gate that'll lead me into the cemetery. The sun is out. The birds are out. It's a beautiful, beautiful, tranquil morning. Since writing to you, I was given the enclosed photograph by an engineer officer. It was found near your son's body and was thought to belong to an officer of the Royal Engineers who was killed by the same shell as your son. I recognise it as being very like your son and probably was his. You may rest assured that he died in a manner which would always be an example to his comrades, doing their duty. Yours sincerely, John A. Kelly, 2nd Lieutenant with the 9th Royal Enniskillen Fusiliers. My goodness, I wonder how many letters like that were sent out. Many, many. Many, many. Well, I'm told just before we go into the graveyard, there is a little cabinet where all the names of those buried here, all the names of those buried in Antwil Cemetery are here. Here's the two books. Now, I think I'll just have a little sit down and uh, read this. This first one here is a visitor's book from the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, where people who have uh, visited the grave and they've uh, put their names in and little, written little comments on it. Let me just go down. People from all over Scotland. Here's one from Germany. I visited McBride. <gasps> he came specially to... One below it, Teresa and Graham Morgan from the Isle of Man. Visited McBride, RIP, always remembered. So there's people actually come to this grave. They know the song and they've come to see the grave of Willie McBride. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Let me look up the Max McBride, McBride, two McBrides. Uh, first one is just W. McBride, Royal Enniskillen Fusiliers, 10th of February 1916. William McBride, this is it, 9th Battalion Royal Enniskillen Fusiliers, killed in action 22nd of April 1916, aged 21, son of Joseph and Lena McBride of Rowan Cottage, Armagh. That's exactly this, the McBrides that we were talking to. This is Joe's uncle, so Joe's uncle is definitely buried there. Grave reference D67. So Joe, for you and your family, I'm going to head now towards the graves to see where uh, your uncle is actually buried. Joe's continuing to look through letters here, just letter after letter from Willie. Yeah, he's won the 15th of August, 
So that's only a few days before he was killed. That one? Yeah. It conveys his love to all at home. Kindly remind me to all until I meet with you and we meet again. Um, Signed William McBride. And that was literally days before he was yeah. killed. In front of me there are hundreds. I'm looking at the backs of all the headstones now, just little white stone memorials with all the names in the front. Daffodils blooming. Iris is coming up. I've just made my way down to the front row and a lot of Enniskilling fusiliers here. There's one W. Nelson, M. McCarthy, 12th of February, O'Manship, Jemison, Sydney Wade, Affleck, Clark. Let me move up. Still, I can see it. I can see it. It's three rows up, third grave in. And there it is. I've got it. I've got it. William McBride, Royal Enniskilling Fusiliers, 22nd of April 1916, age 21. And again, the phrase that I've read many times greater love hath no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends so this is the end of my journey this is Willie McBride and as we now know it's not the Willie McBride in the song and you know something it doesn't really matter and I don't think the family will be all that disappointed to realise that Eric Bogle did not write about this particular William McBride rather he was writing about many William McBrides, all the young men who died and fought at the Battle of the Somme. And I'm sure the McBride family and back in Armagh are as proud of their uncle, whether he was in the song or whether he was not in the song. And from all that I've learnt over my few days here at the Somme, I'm just gobsmacked is the only word I can say. To have seen the trenches, to hear the stories of the hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of young men who fought and died here. It, uh, it makes you very humble. So, Willie McBride, it's nice to meet you, and I salute you. Well, how do you do, young Willie McBride? Do you mind if I sit here down by your graveside and rest for a while? Need the warm summer sun I've been walking all day And I'm nearly done I see by your gravestone You are only 19 When you joined the Great Fallen In 1916 I hope you died well And I hope you died clean our young Willie McBride Was it slow and obscene Did he beat the drums slowly Did he play the fife lowly Did they sound the death march As they lowered you down And did the band play the last post and chorus Did the pipes 
Play the flowers of the forest Did you leave a wife or a sweetheart behind? And some faithful heart is your memory enshrined Although you died back in 1916 And that faithful heart Are you forever 19? Or are you a stranger without even a name And closed them forever behind the glass frame In an old photograph torn, battered and stained And faded to yellow in the brown leather frame Did he beat the drum slowly? Did he play the fine flowly? Did I sound the death march as they lowered you down? Did the band play the last post and chorus? And did the pipes play the flowers of the forest? Now it shines on the green fields of France There's a warm summer breeze It makes the red poppies dance And look how the sun shines from under the clouds There's no gas, no bad wire There's no gun firing now But here in this graveyard It's still no man's land The countless white crosses stand mute in the sand To man's blind indifference to his fellow man To a whole generation that were butchered and damned Did he beat the drums slowly? Did he play the fife slowly? Did they sound the death march as they lowered you down? And did the band play the last post and chorus? Did the pipes play the flowers of the forest? Are you Willie, my bride? I can't help wonder why. Do those that lie here know why did they die? And did they? Believe when they answered the call. Did they really believe that this war would end war? Well, the sorrow, the suffering, the glory, the pain, the killing and dying were all done in vain. For young Willie McBride, it all happened. Again and again and again and again and again. Did they beat the drum slowly? Did they play the fife slowly? Did they sound the death march as they lowered you down? Did the band play the last post and chorus? Did the pipes 